0: pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Christ and the gospel that we have good news to sing about this morning. I pray you'd use our time here in your word to set our affections on things above eternal realities and loosen our grip on things of this earth that we might live lives pleasing to you. Lord, we need your help in these things, and so we express our neediness and dependence upon you now. And we ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen. You all don't need me to to tell you that we live in an angry society. ABCnews.com reported we're ruder than ever. Poll finds it's about the daily assault of selfish, inconsiderate behavior that gets under people's skin on the highways, in the office, on TV, in stores, and myriad other settings where they encounter fellow Americans. Uh, road rage is a real thing. I talked to somebody a few weeks ago who upset a driver. That driver sped ahead of them, got into the underpass, waited till they came to that underpass, and then T-boned them repeatedly, tried to kill him here in Louisville. Sports stars, you know, well-known for their public displays of anger on and off the court. Uh, they beat each other, run each other down with cars, spit in umpires' faces, headbutt referees, choke their coaches, throw bats, bite ears, and worse. In fact, attacks at sporting events for children are so prevalent that the National Association of Sports Officials now offers assault insurance to its referees. Uh, we are an angry culture, and it's not only here in the U.S., but in Many places around the world, this is the case, and this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Which makes it, I think, all the more amazing when Jesus says in our text today that to be angry with another human being is akin to murder. So we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus simply using hyperbole? Is he, is he just trying to, to raise awareness? We're going to see that Jesus really means what he says. Uh, there's no place for this kind of anger in the government of his righteous kingdom. The king has spoken, and this is his final standard. Now, before we get into our text this morning, which is Matthew 5, 21 through 26, so if you would like to, go ahead and turn there. Before we get into that, let's just take a look at the context for a moment. In his sermon introduction called the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12-ish, Jesus made it clear that the blessed are his true followers. He defines them. This is who they are. And so having established that God's people are now being redefined as those who follow him, Jesus encourages them that even though they ought to expect persecution, they are to be his witnesses. Knack's reaction to persecution is kind of and He says, don't do that. They're to influence people towards the kingdom, towards Christ. They are to be the salt of the earth and the light of, of the world. And what Christ is about to teach might appear to contradict the Old Testament, but the previous passage tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so whatever he says is now the new authority and the correct interpretation of scripture. Whatever Christ says is the real standard of righteousness. And those who embrace Christ and love him naturally strive for this righteousness. The religious elites of the day, they were concerned with external obedience outward obedience. But those who enter the kingdom of heaven must have hearts that love the king. and, And a true love for God will always reflect itself by faith in Jesus and results in hearts that do the right things for the right reasons. And this is the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And so this heart, one that truly loves God, will not only refrain from murder, but will not even be angry with his brother. Therefore, whoever is angry with his brother is guilty before God. So Jesus says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, you remember in Exodus 20, Moses came down from Mount Sinai, having received the Ten Commandments. God spoke to the Israelites and told them, You should not murder. Then next chapter in Exodus 21, 12, Moses told the Israelites, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. The Bible Scholar Craig Blomberg comments on our text and says, murder is the correct rendering since the underlying Hebrew, sometimes translated kill, did not include killing in self-defense, wars ordered by Yahweh, capital punishment following due process of law, or accidental manslaughter. So it was clearly murder that was forbidden and the punishment was death. The Jews of Jesus, they understood this commandment and they saw it as, as righteous. So you remember the rich young man of Mark 10, he asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, and so on. And the man replied, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. So the rich young man hadn't murdered anybody. And so he saw himself as righteous. But as we read on, Jesus told him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and get to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So it's implied in the passage that the man, at least at this moment in his life, could not part with his possessions. You know, Jesus didn't tell all rich people that he ran into that they needed to sell all that they had. But he tells this man because he's highlighting this man's real issue. And the real issue is that he didn't love God. You know. Sure, he had never murdered anybody, but he didn't love the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind. If he had, he would have have recognized who it was that was speaking to him and, and would have obeyed him. He thought he was righteous because of his external conformity to the command, you should not murder. But that obedience didn't flow from a heart that truly loved God. He had the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But as we see in verse 20, no one's going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the standard is right behavior flowing from right hearts, nothing less. That's the standard of the king's kingdom. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. This is extremely bold teaching. The the I is emphatic in the Greek, which I think is somewhat lost in translation. We might render it something, I, I myself say to you. Jesus doesn't mix words. He's not trying to soften the force of this reality. He is the new authority. He is the king, and his application, his interpretation of the scripture is true and right. So the long-awaited Messiah has arrived, and he is reestablishing true righteousness. So not only is murder liable to judgment, but so is everyone who is angry with his brother. I think we've all heard these words of Christ probably several times. And I think we need to be careful not to lose their shocking nature. I can picture Jesus sitting down on this plateau, teaching the Beatitudes. Everyone may be nodding in agreement. The wind's blowing, the grass, the sun's out shining. Everyone's having a good time. Perhaps the listeners are daydreaming a few of them until he says these words. But I say to you that everyone, not some of them, not certain folks, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So maybe, you know, we can imagine some people looking around at this point seeing what other people's reaction are, you I mean, sitting up a little bit straighter, and thinking, did I just hear what I think I heard? I've never murdered anybody. But if you're saying that anger is liable to judgment, then you're talking about me, of course. I mean, we've all been angry with our brother. So Jesus has stirred the hornet's nest a bit. In the king's economy, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And what really is anger? The Greek word translated anger in our text means wrath, make angry, provoke, translate those ways. Some Greek dictionaries render this word as rage or very angry, so they see it as intensified, but most simply just render it as anger. And we know that not all anger is wrong. Uh, we all know that Christ had righteous anger. For example, in Mark 3, 5, Jesus was... Being watched in the synagogue to see if he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And the text says, Jesus looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he healed him. Great word for anger in our text is the same as that, uh, or in that text is the same in ours in Matthew 5, but in noun form. So Jesus was clearly angry. So there is such a thing as righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Webster's defines anger as a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism. That's how it's used in English. And in commenting on this text and in that definition, John Piper, in his book, What Jesus Demands writes, the reason the phrase a strong feeling of displeasure can't stand by itself is that we don't think of really bad tasting food as awakening anger even though there may be strong displeasure, that displeasure needs another component before it's experienced as anger. If someone keeps feeding us terrible food, and we sense that they're doing it intentionally, then we might get angry. Anger seems to be more or less strong displeasure about something that is happening willfully and we believe should not be happening. So he's highlighting and saying that that antagonism or hostility factor is key. You know, we don't typically become angry at inanimate objects because the hostility or the antagonism is lacking. Although sometimes we will, uh, you know, kick the tree when we can't get it to, to fall down when we cut it or whatever. Jay Adams says anger in and of itself is not sinful. The fact is that there are no damaging or destructive emotions per se. Our emotional makeup is totally from God. All emotions of which he made us capable are constructive when used properly in accordance with biblical principles. So he says that the anger isn't sinful per se, but that our emotions respond to what's going on in our hearts, in our biblical hearts, not the world's understanding of hearts, which is mainly emotion, but the biblical heart, what we believe truly, what what we think, what we desire, our life goals, our commitments. All those things comprise the biblical heart. And they act like caution lights on the dashboard of our vehicle that's telling us that something's going wrong underneath the hood. So Jesus' emotions in that Mark 3 uh, text reflected that he loved people, and the Pharisees didn't. And so because he loved people, and the situation there, his anger was a righteous response to that situation, and the anger moved him to defy the Pharisees and heal a man with a withered hand. And so anger is essentially a feeling. It's essentially an emotion, a strong feeling of displeasure, usually of antagonism. Uh, That's why we have anger management classes where we humans try to attempt to channel our anger in productive directions. Anger is often something that we think needs to be corralled and managed positively in more socially acceptable ways. Things that don't get us, in ways that don't get us fired, or don't, or don't end us up divorced, you know, wind us up divorced, and so forth. But our text is not encouraging us to manage our anger properly, otherwise, the command not to murder would be able to stand by itself. Jesus is telling us not to be angry with our brother, period. Don't even step on that path that leads to murder. We're not even to feel or have the emotion of anger towards a brother in the first place. That's the issue. It's the judgments and and the values going on in the heart that produce the emotion of anger that are the problem. Proverbs 4.23, you know, we're taught, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. What's going on in your heart, we live our lives based off of that. And that's what we're to guard. We're to guard our thinking. We're to guard our beliefs. We're to guard the things we want. Because those things dictate how we live, what we do. Or... Really, Jesus reiterating that teaching in Matthew 15:18 or Mark 7:21: out of the heart comes all these evil things. Or when he's talking to the Pharisees, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right, so anger is sinful or righteous based on the value judgments of our hearts. If we value the right things and our emotion in response to that is anger, then it's righteous. Other people, though, their person, not so much what they do, but their person. not to arouse our anger. If they do, then our anger is sinful. So, So the object or source of our anger determines whether or not the anger, the emotion, is sinful. Sinful hearts can worship the wrong things, can value the wrong things to a wrong degree, which then bears the fruit of sinful anger. The issue here is the heart. In that same discussion about anger, John Piper says, anger happens. It is spontaneous. It's not a rational choice. It's an Unpremeditated experience. Something happens and rises in our heart. What makes it rise when it does, and with the strength and duration it rises, is a combination of the evil we observe and the condition of our mind and heart. Jesus's demand, therefore, is not that we master the expressions of our anger with self-control, though that is often what duty requires. His demand is that there be a change in our condition. This is why people don't overcome anger as easily as they ought to. Because they they just look at the emotion. They know the scriptures say that anger is bad. And so they look at the emotion and they just try to stop that emotion by using extreme self-control, but they never look underneath the hood. The anger is coming because they, they, the sinful anger is coming because they have wrong desires. They want the wrong things. The anger is coming because they believe wrong things about life, about people, about themselves. We're not commanded here simply to manage our anger. That's not Christ's aim. His aim is a fundamental change in the heart, a fundamental change in the way we think, particularly here about other people, what we believe about them, what we want in regards to them, and our goals as it relates to people. We're to have hearts that care about what God cares about to the degree to which he cares about it. If we want the right things, if we believe the right things, then our emotions are going to be righteous. We'll be sad about the right things. We'll be angry about the right things and not about the wrong things. Uh, So, for example, if I worship my car, then I might feel the emotion of anger directed at the person who rear ends me. The anger, the emotion in and of itself isn't wrong. That's not the issue. The emotion isn't the problem. But my heart, my inner man that attached too high of a value to my car, that is the issue. That's what needs repented of. And I think this is essential in order to understand our text accurately. The emotion of anger isn't sinful in and of itself, but the desires or the thoughts that are beliefs that trigger the emotion is what is or is not sinful. Jesus doesn't forbid anger, but anger triggered by thoughts and beliefs based off the judgment that a certain human being is worthless. That's what's forbidden. And so, something more, way more radical than anger management is in focus here, which is why Jesus goes on to say whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He clarifies what he's getting at. The Greek text literally reads, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, fool or empty head or blockhead, liable, he will be to the Sanhedrin, to the council. And whoever says stupid, liable, he'll be in the Gehenna of fire. The Sanhedrin is the governing entity responsible for judging the people. And Gehenna comes from the, the Hebrew Gehinnom, which referred to the Valley of Hinnom, south of Israel, associated in Old Testament times with the pagan god Moloch, and it came to represent the place of eschatological judgment, or end times judgment, or hell. And so to call someone rockin', to call someone blockhead, or to call someone stupid, or something akin to, to worthless or, or good for nothing, is worthy of eternal banishment in the lake of fire. It's worthy of hell itself. It's worthy of eternal judgment. So this qualifies what Christ is getting at here. The the anger that he's talking about is an emotion of displeasure flowing from the belief that another human being is worthless. That's, I think, an accurate definition of, of what Christ is getting at. Unrighteous anger is the fruit of Wrong thoughts and beliefs or desires. You see, the the thoughts and beliefs or desires are where the problem is not the emotion. As the authors of the cry of the soul explain, and I love how they put this, they say emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. And that is the problem. Anger directed at a person is evidence that the heart is crying out they hate people. That is the issue. So the heart that thinks or believes that another human being is worthless, that is what's being forbidden. To call someone a stupid idiot is the fruit of a murderous heart and is not allowed, It's not characteristic of those who are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And so sinful anger is simply the voice or cry of a heart that believes another human being is worthless. And so our context places a focus on that aspect of anger that says, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead." To curse or to murder, either of those things, flow from the same heart. It, It flows from the same thought process, it flows from the same beliefs, the same desires about people. And so just because a person doesn't pull the trigger doesn't mean that they're righteous. And this teaching is radical. The heart needs so radically changed that it thinks, that it believes quite differently but other human beings, and so will not respond with sinful anger. Now, who is without sin? Now, where does that rich young man stand? Is he still standing tall? I think the primary purpose in Christ's teaching here is, is to clearly define the standards of the kingdom, to, to reestablish the Creator's original in, in intent of the command. But I think Jesus also has in mind the destruction of any self-righteousness established by the religious system of the day, or really uh, of any day, any philosophy. Because this teaching blows self-righteousness out of the water and it exposes man's desperate need for a savior. In this one short little verse, mankind's self-righteousness is exposed for the house of cards that it truly is. And, and the blessed are left to behold the utter beauty, the utter perfection, of Christ and his kingdom ethics. So Jesus is beheld as the authoritative expositor who exceeds the wisdom of Solomon. What a vision. What a hope. That's what this is for the blessed. Jesus has already said, the blessed are this. This is who you are. And he's talking to them. You are this. You are my people. You are this. And now he's saying, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. This is what my followers' lives look like. They're characterized by this in an increasing measure. And it's beautiful. He's giving a vision of what it looks like for his people to live life now that they've been so radically changed. Can you imagine a world where uh, the hearts of mankind were shaped in such a way to never be sinfully angry at one another, to never think this way uh, with other human beings? Can you imagine a church A group of believers' families where where this command was taken seriously and and where people pleaded with God to change what they worship, where they prayed sincerely, Lord, help me to love what you love. Help me to hate what you hate. And so Jesus establishes the original intent behind the command. He he reveals God's heart on the issue, and at the same time, he, he exposes man's desperate need for a Savior. And here's the real kicker. We can't make our hearts love the right things. We can't make our hearts believe the right things or want the right things. That's why Piper says anger happens. He's not saying that people aren't responsible for their anger, their sinful anger. He's just saying our experience with anger is such that it just happens. And and we, we think that, we believe that it just happens because we're not aware of the things that we're actually wanting in our hearts all the time. We kind of come to them, you know, automatically, habitually. And we, we have patterns of belief about about things that, that puts us in a situation then where the situation arises, and we respond with anger because we want the wrong thing. That's why the best the world can offer is anger management classes. They don't try to change the heart because they can't. All they can do is just uh, encourage self-control in different areas so that the The emotion of anger is directed in more socially acceptable ways. That's why they'll say, okay, you got an anger issue, don't beat your wife. Instead, go buy some china and go out to a dumpster and throw it in the dumpster and get your anger out there. That's more socially acceptable. That's what the world has to offer, for real. That's a true uh, counseling case that has been relayed to me. Israel is the perfect test case for this. A nation having God as their king could not love God, couldn't do the right thing. They needed new hearts, ones that love what God loves and hate what God hates. So mankind is desperately unable to do this in their own strength. They can't do it. And so the Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 26, talking about the new covenant that would come, he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How? How is he going to cause them to walk in his statutes? Well, the Lord must give us new hearts, new desires, new beliefs, new goals in life, a new way of thinking about other human beings in this particular situation. In our own stance, in our own strength, we can't carry out that, that command. We need those new hearts. We need new desires. We need the Holy Spirit's strength to carry this out. And because of our flesh, the flesh is still going to fail in this area until Christ returns, but it's nonetheless the standard. And they're going to be more and more characterized by his standard. And the blessed see this standard now because they've been given a new heart, they've been given a new desire, and they absolutely love it. The unbeliever doesn't love this. Their face isn't toward it. They, They don't desire to think rightly about people. But the blessed, those whom Christ has saved and given them a new heart and put his spirit within them, they see this vision, this vision for living, this standard is absolutely glorious. But now, I mean, why is murderous anger forbidden in the first place? Why is it wrong in the first place? Well, for starters, we see that the king demands loyalty to God. In Exodus 20, verse 2, God prefaces the Ten Commandments with these words I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God chose to redeem Israel. They didn't redeem themselves, they didn't rescue themselves. Therefore, the nation was to respond to their redemption by obeying God's commands. They would obey the Ten Commandments out of love for God's redemption, out of, his, out of love for his rescue, as an exercise of faith in the truth that he was and is the creator of the universe. That he was not is the one who rescued them, redeemed them. And so those who, who loved God would express their loyalty and their devotion to him by obeying his laws, by obeying his commands. That's why the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Their devotion, their loyalty uh, was to Yahweh because He was the one who redeemed them. No one else redeemed them. He is the one. He's the one who rescued them. So He alone is worthy of their worship. And so it is with Christ's kingdom. Therefore, if if He condemns murder, then murder is is wrong. And then also as we study and look at the Ten Commandments, we see that, that at their core they express... The love of God and love of neighbor, because God is love. 1 John four sixteen, and clearly states, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so in Matthew 22, 37, Jesus states, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. To love God and to love people is a summation of the entire heart of the scriptures. This is God's heart. Therefore, God must be loved because it's right. And people also must be loved because, as we'll see, this is also God's heart. To hate people and wish they were dead is the opposite of love. And God is love. In this sermon, Jesus is not intensifying the commands, as some people think. He's also not saying anything new, as some people think. He's simply explaining the Father's heart behind these commands. And the direction that he takes the commands and the force with which he applies them is authoritative. Because he is the authoritative expositor, bar none. See, the command not to murder always had at its heart the forbidding of this anger because this anger is opposite of love. So from the beginning, the command flowed out of a love for people. And an understanding that people were created in the image of God. In Genesis 1.26 that we read earlier, we see that God's just created the beast of the earth. and and, And then he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. If you notice there, in the creation of all these other things, God simply said, let there be light or let the waters swarm with fish and so forth. And there's that pattern. But before the creation of man, there's a brief divine counsel. Let us, the text says, let us make man in our image. I think highlighting something quite different, something quite spectacular and special is about to be created. The Hebrew word for image is derived from a root that means to carve out, to cut. In Genesis 1, 16 through 27, it means that man is a, a cutout or a representation of God. So Adam and Eve were to be God's representatives on earth. Uh, They were to represent God as vice regents and and as sons and daughters and work the garden, expand the temple garden so that filled the entire globe. That was their mission. And so they were given with that mission unique abilities to carry out those tasks to the glory of God. And so what I think the best understanding of made in the image of God is, is those qualities that enable them to live out that mission of God's vice regents and as his sons and daughters. No other creature is given the privilege and honor of being the image bearer of God. And so in Genesis nine, after the flood, God God tells Noah in verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Well, why? The text goes on to say, for God made man in his own image. That's why. Anthony Hokema writes in his book, Created in God's Image, He says, the reason that murder is here said to be such a heinous crime that it must be punished by death is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God and represented God. To touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence to God himself. This ought to ratchet up our view of the sanctity of of human life a few thousand turns. Have You ever thought of it that way? To kill the image of God is to do violence to God himself. Mankind bears the image of God. Mankind is ex- extremely unique, valuable. Valuable To murder a person is to do violence to God himself. The reader, reason murder is wrong is because man has unique value. Psalm 83 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Human beings reflect the image of God. And from them, from the human race, comes the Messiah, the King of Kings, who will crush the serpent's head. Jesus Christ, the seed of David, who secures the value, the preciousness of mankind of the human race for all eternity. He who is forever human. So God cares about the human race. God loves people. In James 3, we learn about the tongue and the damage it causes. And so in verse 9 we read, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Savior and with it we curse people who are made in, in, in the likeness of God. And then later on James says, brothers, these things ought not to be so, right? You you can't say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you're one of God's children, at the same time curse other human beings. You cannot do it without being convicted in your heart. To bless God and to curse man is inconsistent. This is because human beings are made in the image of God. To curse human beings is to curse God in whose image they are made. And God's true people love him which means they're gonna love people, they have to. So don't fool yourself. If you're here this morning and you do not love people, you are not a believer. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. If you do not love people, if you're not characterized by that, I'm not talking momentary lapses where where you mess up, but if your face is not towards loving people, you are not a believer. There's no way it's possible. If you love God, then you will love those who are made in his image. And then we have 1 John 3.15, which puts it even more bluntly. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Right? John's application and understanding of our text was clearly that he understood anger was actually hatred. Which encourages us to see the anger in our text as nearly synonymous with hatred. The anger that bears the fruit of murder is sinful because it's a blasphemous attack on the creator. And it doesn't reflect his heart toward people. The anger that leads to murder is personal hatred for an individual, a race, or people. A person bearing God's image is the focus of their extreme displeasure. And in that feeling, that emotion, whether or not it results in murder, highlights a sinful heart. And the perpetrator is guilty before God, deserving eternal torment. The blessed, though, Christ's true people, those who have truly been saved are now called and enabled to love what God loves and hate what God hates and to do so in increasing measure. And so they love people and they encourage each other to love people. They love image bearers, they, they must. True believers love people. And the applications of this truth are, are wide and varied. The applications at least begin with attitudes. If we've ever said that person makes me so mad Or we call someone stupid, then our hearts are guilty before God. Maybe it's that we haven't used those words. Maybe we simply thought the world would be a better place without this particular person. It would be better if they were never born, is our thought. That's a vicious attack on the image bearer, and so does violence to God. All judgments that consider another human being worthless are forbidden for those in the kingdom of heaven. And because of the severity of the punishment, I think that even to joke about these things is is not something we should partake in. So when uh, someone cuts us off in traffic, do we look over at them with hate in our hearts? Is there murder in our hearts? How are we at home with our families and our roommates? Spouses, how do we disagree? When a Disagreement arises, are we angry uh, with our spouse? Is our heart stance such that it wishes the other one was dead? God help us. Guys, do we throw around our weight when we're angry and use fear to manipulate? Spousal abuse is, is the fruit of simple anger and an attack on God himself. And so it's not something we can tolerate here as a body of believers. Do we watch the news and see our leaders doing things we disagree with and respond to them with hearts full of hate? Or or do we grieve their hardness of of heart and weep over their lost condition? Do we respond with sympathy for one of God's image bearers who's gone astray? What's, What's the status of our hearts? How do we view the elderly and the infirm? Do we consider them worthless, out of sight, out of mind? Not worth, not worth our care, not worth our time. Kids, how do you view your siblings? How do you think about your parents? What words do you use to describe them? What are your thoughts in regards to them? You know, the world is so slick. Satan's so so slick in in, in movies. Even going back to the '60s, you know, children's thoughts about their parents. that parents were stupid and buffoons that's satanic absolutely satanic how do we view those with different skin color do we make judgments in our hearts based on how people look how do we treat the poor do we neglect them when we see a homeless person do we treat them as image bearers or as dirty untouchables When we see the homeless, do we immediately ponder what foolish events brought them to this point? Or is our first response to view them as those created in the image of God? Or do we see them as worthless? How about those who hold to different political or religious views than our own? Do we consider them worthless? Do we call them raka? Those made in the image of God, where are we? Is Is there murder in our hearts? You see, our greatest problems aren't out there, but in here. This is a challenge, this is a particular challenge for us. And I think something we need to be careful with here at Kenwood, and I'm, and I'm preaching to myself, I'm saying this to myself, because I think that we can easily view our main problems as out there. We have our theology down, we know the scriptures, I think we can slip into this, this habit that's so easy for us to slip into where we view liberal politics or critical race theory, you know, ungodly philosophies, the latest drama with the SBC or Southern Seminary as our main problem. And rail at the wrongs out there all the while in our hearts. We're angry with our brothers. We're angry with other people. And I'm not preaching this because of some specific incident or because I think that there's a specific problem. Uh, I'm preaching this because it's in Matthew 5, and that's what I decided to preach on. But we need to hear it. Because I do think that this is a challenge for us. Hatred directed towards those created in the image of God is an attack on God himself, and it's worthy of eternal fire. It's extremely serious. It doesn't reflect God's heart. It goes against his character. He must hate it. And so Gehenna must be the punishment. Therefore, because of this, make every effort to be at peace with one another. So Jesus goes on in verse 23 and says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Hell is a place reserved for those who hate and so are angry at people. What a terrible place. For all of eternity, you're going to be, those who are in hell for all of eternity, you're going to be surrounded by those who hate people. And so this is a serious crime, and it's the fruit of the heart in a desperate situation. And so those who truly believe everything that we just talked about are not only going to refrain from murderous anger but are also going to ensure that they are at peace with others. They're going to be very concerned if they have caused another person to stumble in this area. And so because all has just been said, because all men are image bearers, if we're offering our gift at the altar, and they remember that our brother has something against us, we're to leave our gift before the altar and go. I think it's implying something legitimate. We've wronged them. The altar was in the inner court of the temple. So presenting an offering before the Lord, there was a solemn act of worship of highest priority. But Jesus says that if you're engaged in a solemn act of worship, something that is righteous and true and extremely important like this, and it comes to your mind that your brother has something against you, you've wronged him, then go immediately and be reconciled to your brother. Nothing is more important. If the anger talked about here is the heart path to murder, If we truly believe this and understand this heart attitude is doing violence to god himself then we'll have just as much desire to ensure that we're not a stumbling block to our brother in this area we will be concerned not to be another's temptation for heart murder we want to live and act with our brothers in such a way that we're not provoking them you know ephesians 6 tells dads not to provoke provoke their children And this is, I think, not only for brothers, but also for enemies. Making peace with enemies is also a top priority. Verse 25 says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you never get out until you've paid the last penny. The blessed, those who long for the kingdom, Christ's followers, they, they care about the souls of all people. This isn't just for brothers and sisters in the Lord, I don't think. This, is an attitude, this isn't an attitude restricted to the church, but even our accusers are enemies. I think qualified later on in Matthew 5 where Jesus clearly says, love your enemies. Right? The, the kingdom is about souls of men. And so God's people are to be about souls of men. That's what our lives are to be about. right? If we find and we take inventory of our lives and we find that our lives are not about the souls of men, then our goals in life are off and those need those that need tweak, those that need change. The kingdom is about the souls of men, all men. We're to be concerned about the spiritual condition of all people. And the consequences of failure here are dire. Failure to make peace with others has, has dire consequences. So verse 26, Jesus says, I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny. Right? We're to avail ourselves of every means possible, so far as it depends on us to be at peace with others. We're to so love and cherish image bearers and the one they image that we'll be concerned never to be a stumbling block for another, even our accuser, even our enemy. So God help us. As Paul said in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the blessed hear this command, they hear this teaching forbidding murderous anger, and they see it as beautiful. God's given them a heart that, that can see it as beautiful. And, and they embrace it wholeheartedly, which requires new hearts, which requires salvation. But at the same time, they realize their utter incomplete inability to comply, and so they see their king, the one who saved them, as their only source of hope. And so the blessed understand well John 15, 5, where Jesus speaks of himself and says, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, is, is the bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The blessed are those who have been forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future. They've been given new hearts. They've been given new hearts that love God. And so they strive to stay close to Jesus. They see their desperate need for the Spirit's power to help them love image bearers. And so they pray without ceasing. And when they love God, when they grow in loving God, they'll grow in valuing what He values. They'll value those who are made in His image. And they'll value their own, they'll value that more than they'll value their own peace and comfort, more than they'll value their own prestige. And they'll do this in increasing measure. And they rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory that it isn't their performance that saves them, but their king's the one who was never guilty of this kind of sinful anger. In 33 years or so of life, can you imagine never once being angry, sinfully angry at another human being? The only one who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The one who hung on the cross for angry sinners in their place and through faith in him, reconciled them to God. To him be glory and dominion forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for Jesus Christ and his salvation. Our inability to love the way that you love condemns us all, exposes our desperate need for a savior. I pray, Lord, that if there are those here this morning who do not love people and they know in their heart of hearts that they are condemned before you because of this. I pray, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that they would see this vision that Christ lays out for us in this sermon as glorious and wonderful. Grant them repentance. Lord, I want to pray for those of us who have been saved, who've been given new hearts, and who love you and love people. I pray, Lord, that we would be in we, we would be characterized more and more by loving people. Thank you for your patience with us. Lord, help us to be a particular group of people that is characterized in this world, that is characterized by being angry at all things. I pray, Lord, that we would be beacons of light, that we would be salt of the earth, that this would be something that, that is fresh, and glorious and contagious and lord we are desperate for your spirit to help us in that effort so help us in this for your glory amen